pastor, preacher, internationally known radio speaker, author, theologian, Dr. Erwin Lutzer is no stranger to Colonial Baptist Church. We have had the opportunity and been blessed to have him here several times in the past in our summer series as one of our featured speakers. He was here two years ago to speak as our keynote speaker at our 25th anniversary celebration. It's a real privilege to have him here. This service, his wife, Rebecca, is joining us. I don't mean to embarrass her, but I'm going to ask her to stand. And let's welcome the Lutzers and Dr. Lutzer to the pulpit, shall we? Yes, Rebecca doubles all of my joys, she halves my sorrows, and she triples my expenses. <laughs> so how are you all doing today? Good. In Chicago, there was a couple that was out for their uh, 40th wedding anniversary. Keep that in mind. 40th wedding anniversary, each was 60 years old. An angel appeared and said, what would you like for your anniversary? And the wife said, I've never traveled. I'd love to travel. The angel flashed his sword and instantly in her hands were two tickets for a world cruise. It was the man's turn. He took the angel aside and said, you know, I'd really like to be married to somebody who's 30 years younger than I am. And the angel flashed his sword and instantly the man was 90 years old. Be careful what you ask for. What a delight it is to be here today and, of course, to enjoy your warm fellowship. But I deeply regret that your pastor, Stephen, is not here. In fact, I think your leadership should make a law that at no time can Stephen leave when Rebecca and I are here. We've enjoyed so much fellowship together, and I hope that you know, and I think you do, that Pastor Stephen's gifts are very unique, the heart and the mind of a scholar, but also the heart of a pastor, blessing this great congregation. And your ministry and the greatness of this church is very much connected to his gifts and abilities. So we're sorry that he isn't here, but I understand that Marsha is here, and we'll get to meet a little later on. And of course... uh, I do bring you greetings from the great city of Chicago, the city of righteousness and love and all those other things (laughs) that you read about in the news. And this morning I did mention the Chicago Cubs. Do we have some Cub fans? Not many, but a few. God bless you. God bless you. And uh, clap louder because they're going to need it, okay? In fact, the other day, according to the media, they were having a batting practice and the pitching machine pitched a no-hitter, okay? <laughs> so that's what, that's what the Cubs have come down to. What would you do if you found this on your doorstep? To the family of infidels, in the name of Allah and his final prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the true religion of Islam will arise in your area. You cannot stop Allah's will. We have been watching you and your family. We have seen you go to church and seen you pray to your false god. We know that you are infidels and we will deal with you as our holy Quran declares. 
Surah 9 verse 5 says, To slay the idolaters wherever you find them, take them captive and besiege them. It also says in Surah 9 verse 29, To fight those who have been given the scripture and believe not in Allah or the last day, and follow not the religion of truth. If you and your entire family do not leave your false religion and follow Islam, you will be killed. Your sons will be slaughtered and your daughters will become Muslim wives bearing sons who will fight for Allah in this region. Your only other option is to flee tonight. Leave your home and everything else behind. So how would you relate? According to the experts, about 400 Christians every single day are killed and martyred because of their faith. Not just in Muslim countries, but also if you add together North Korea and other countries. That's what you discover. The OIC, the Organization of Islamic Communities, has for a long time tried to get a legislation through our United Nations that would make all criticism of Islam criminal. It would be a crime. As a matter of fact, many Christians are dying today not because they say anything against Muhammad or the Quran, but simply being Christians is an offense to Islam because that means you believe in the Trinity, the deity of Christ, which of course is considered to be a great sin in Islam. How would you fare if that were to happen? In fact, in Egypt today, what is happening is Christians have to leave their homes And then the Muslims come and occupy all of their homes, all of their possessions, all of their lands. It's happening all over the world. And it could happen here. I want to begin with a very brief commercial. My most important book is entitled The Cross in the Shadow of the Crescent. The Cross in the Shadow of the Crescent, written to prepare the church for the future And uh, become acquainted with the Moody Church website. If you go there, you can hear the sermon that I preached last Sunday regarding the Supreme Court decision. The title of the sermon is God, the Supreme Court, and the Unthinkable. And you can also go to Moody Media to pick up resources and so forth. I hope that you become acquainted with that. And if you are ever in the Chicago area, the church to attend happens to be the Moody Church. You do expect God to bless you and all that, right? (laughs) But my uh, topic today is martyrdom. No question about it. You know, this is a series in the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Greek text, you shall be my martyrs till the end of the age. So what we're going to look at today is the first Christian martyr, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. And I know that some of you young people, you don't bring your Bibles, you bring your cell phones. So don't judge the person next to you if they're looking at their cell phone, they might have the Bible on it. Mind you, they may be looking at other things. In that case, feel free to judge them. (laughs) But my staff brings cell phones, so I can't preach against cell phones like I'd like to. But if you have your Bible, it is chapter 7, verse 54. Speaking of Stephen, and you can tell your pastor I preached about him. If he says, what did Luther preach on? Say, he preached about you. And you can say, and you came out pretty well, actually. 
Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him and he full of the Holy Spirit. Let's stop there. They are full of rage. He is filled with the Spirit. In fact, the last verse of chapter 6 says that as they looked at Stephen there at the council, it says they looked at him and his face was like the face of an angel. How does a Spirit-filled person endure persecution and death. That's on our agenda. One of the things that you'll notice, obviously, is the great distinction between what we're going to see in heaven and what we're seeing on earth. We have a friend whose wife died. He was actually at the church, and she stayed home because she didn't feel well. He got home. She was dead in bed. And an elder and I went over there, and we saw her, and we saw him, and he was waiting for the undertaker to come. And at that point, all that you can see is despair, loneliness, grief, endless unanswered questions, and it's an awful experience. But what was she seeing at that very time? Well, we're going to find out today because the text is going to help us. In fact, what I'm going to give you is four experiences that believers have when they die. Four experiences. And once again, those of you who take notes, I uh, pray that God will bless you, and I know that he will. As I mentioned in a previous service, if you're taking notes here in heaven, your crown is going to be so heavy that your head will be tilted. So please take note. First experience, let's look at the text. It says, and he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Let's stop there, the glory of God. Old Testament, the Shekinah glory came to Israel. And the Shekinah glory was like a cloud that was beautiful and bright, representing the holiness, the beauty, the power of God. And at the end of the day, nothing else matters except God's glory, by the way, in your life. Your schedule doesn't matter. Your success doesn't matter. It is the glory of God that accompanied Israel as a sign of his presence. Moses was up with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And then later on, there was that incident of disobedience. But Moses and God are talking, and Moses says, show me your glory. He still hadn't had enough. God says, no man can see me and live, but if you hide yourself in a rock... I will pass over, and as I pass over, you'll receive a glimpse of my glory. But no human eye can see God directly in this life. No man can see me and live. Now, Moses didn't get into the land, as you well know. He was barred from it because of disobedience. But in the end, he did. 1,400 years later, he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is transfigured before them, and Moses again sees the glory of God. He's still doing what he wanted to do on earth, namely seeing more of God's glory. Now, Stephen is looking into heaven. He sees the glory of God. Because he's still in the flesh during this time, he's only receiving a glimpse of the glory of God. But after he dies, he will see the glory of God without mediation. And the glory of God in its fullness can then be seen because we will see God face to face as he is. You all know Johnny Erickson Tada. 
wonderful woman, a quadriplegic who has blessed millions because of her faith in the midst of suffering. She said that the thing that she looks forward to most about going to heaven is not being able to park her wheelchair at the door of heaven, though she says that'll be wonderful and she knows where she hopes God sends it to, and it is a place (laughs) below. She says what she will appreciate the most is to be able to be in fellowship and gaze on God without any sin ever coming between. Wow. What do the redeemed see when they die? They see the glory and the beauty of God for the first time, and they see God as he is. Stephen looks up, sees the glory of God. Secondly, they see the welcome of Jesus. The welcome of Jesus, you'll notice it says, and Jesus standing at the right hand. I'm in verse 56, I think it is. And he said, Behold, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now you need to understand that in the Old Testament, the priests were never allowed to sit down. There were no chairs in the tabernacle. They had to stand continually. Why? Because as far as God was concerned, it was very important, very important that they symbolize the fact that their work was never done. So they offer a sacrifice for sins, and then people sin more, and then they need to offer another sacrifice. And, you know, the fire on the altar was to be continuous. Why? Because the sin was never finally taken away. So they stood. They could not sit. But when we get to the book of Hebrews and we read about Jesus, what does it say? It says that Jesus, having finished his work, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. When Jesus offered his sacrifice, his work was done to Telestai. It is finished. Nothing more left to be done. Redemption has been accomplished. He can sit down. Ten times or so in the New Testament, we read that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And now suddenly, Jesus gets up off of his throne. And Stephen looks up and Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. It's as if Jesus is saying, Stephen, I know that the stones hurt. I know that this is going through a very difficult time for you. And there's more pain ahead. But I'm up here to welcome you and I am ready to receive you. And Jesus says today to that woman or to that man suffering from cancer, I know all the suffering you've been through with chemotherapy. I know all of the suffering that you've been through with all of the false hopes that have been given to you, the ups and the downs. I see the grief in your family, but I am here to welcome you. Just know that when it's over, I will be here for you. Jesus welcomed Stephen. You say, well, Pastor Luther, why don't more people have an experience like Stevens? Uh, Why is it? Well, you know, it used to be in the days before uh, you had uh, various medications, the days before you had uh, anesthetics of various kinds. It used to be in those days that people often did. Not always, but and it certainly isn't necessary, but occasionally they did. In my book, One Minute After You Die, I tell the story of a Dr. Sandborn. I think it was in Iowa. And uh, he uh, went to a home and a little girl was dying on a Saturday morning. 
And the little girl hovered between this life and the next and said, I want to go in, but Mimi goes before me. And then I want to go in, but Gramps is going in ahead of me. Well, he prayed with her, and a little later he discovers she died. But he wanted to find out who was Gramps and Mimi. So he did a little research with the family, discovered that Gramps was somebody who was part of the family, had moved, I think it was, to New York. Mimi was also in the area, but she had moved elsewhere. And his research showed that they both died that Saturday morning. Eternity is real. I mean, I'm talking about the fact it is so real that you or I could go out and we could have a heart attack today or an aneurysm, and there we would be suddenly in eternity with Jesus, with the glory of God, because that's what Christians experience. There's something else I think they experience, and that is the assurance, the assurance of Jesus. This has to do with his providence. I asked the question, uh, did, you, did uh, Stephen die according to the will of God? Of course he died according to the will of God. It was God's will that he die that way. You say, well, what about these evil people? Well, they are responsible to God, no question about it. But you think of Jesus, who is offered by the predeterminate counsel of God. And he died exactly at the time God wanted him to die, when the Passover lambs were being slain there in Jerusalem, because he was the Lamb of God. Jesus died according to God's time, though he was a victim of violence. I remember speaking to a woman who, whose husband was murdered, and she went through so much agony, unable to accept that. She said, this is not the work of God that my husband should be murdered. It is the work of the devil. And I said to her, well, what about the killing of Jesus? Was that the work of the devil? Yeah, that was the work of the devil or Stephen or other martyrs. And the answer is yes, but even then, it is still the work and the plan of God. Maybe I can put it this way. The Bible says that Jesus was delivered into the hands of wicked men. But there comes a time when the hands of wicked men can do only so much and the hands of God take over. So that even if you're in the devil's hands, as a believer, you are still in God's hands. Some of you may be acquainted with church history, and you know there was a man by the name of John Hus who preached in Bohemia, that is in what we used to call Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, Prague to be exact. Rebecca and I have been to his chapel there. And uh, he preached the gospel. The pope didn't like it, so he was asked to go to Constance in Germany, And he was offered safe conduct, but when he got there, they decided that they didn't have to keep their word to a heretic, so he was burned at the stake. In fact, in Constance, there's a stone there that they say was the one upon which he was burned. But the Catholic authority says, we commit your soul to the devil. Hus said, I commit my soul to the living God. You know what the Bible says to Smyrna, Jesus dictating that letter in the book of Revelation? He says this. He says, Satan is going to cast you into prison for 10 days. Now, we don't know what the 10 days is. It doesn't mean 10 eras, literally 10 days, 10 years, whatever. But one thing is sure. 
If Jesus says that you are going to be persecuted for 10 days, all the demons of hell cannot make it 11 days. Because when we are in suffering, Jesus keeps his hand on the thermostat. He said, uh, you're going to be there for 10 days. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. In other words, even though you're being thrown into the hands of the devil, you are still in the hands of God. Within the last 48 hours, 29 school children were killed, martyred, burned in Nigeria along with one of their teachers. We just received word. Muslim militants went into this school, killed these children, screaming, agonizing. As they were believing children, are they now, were they in the devil's hands? Yeah, but ultimately, in whose hands were they? They were in the hands of God, because to quote the words of Luther, even the devil is God's devil. I've been at Moody Church for many years, still haven't preached all the sermons I've thought about preaching. Now, mind you, I don't spend as much time in a book as your pastor, I might say. But I've always wanted to preach a sermon entitled Hands in Harmony because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me and they will never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And then Jesus said, my father who gave them to me is greater than all and no man can pluck them out of my father's hands. So you have the hand of Jesus and you have the hand of the Father and they hold on to the sheep and no one can pluck them out from under their hand. And here's Stephen, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The assurance that the promises of God are just as true as God gave them, and Stephen's decision was a wise decision to commit his soul to God for safekeeping forever. That's what's experienced one moment after we die. That's what the, the believers experience, is the assurance of God's promises. There's something else, and that is they receive the coronation of Jesus. They are crowned by Jesus. Now, this may not be explicit in the text, but a moment ago I quoted the fact that those who are martyrs receive the crown of life. By the way, you say to yourself, boy, I'd like to receive that crown of life without being a martyr. You know, most of us, if we had a sign-up sheet, we wouldn't sign up and say, Yeah, I want to be a martyr, even though some young people in Egypt did that. Did you know about a year ago, young people in Egypt, in Cairo, marched down the the streets with T-shirts that said, Martyr by Request? Not sure that we have young people in America like that, but they signed up. But most of us wouldn't want to sign up. But you know what it says in the book of James? If you overcome temptation... Temptation can be so excruciating. If you overcome temptation, you too can receive the crown of life. Now, the very word Stephen, Stephanos in Greek, is crown, by the way. So we know Stephen received the crown, and so we have the name Stephen today. We have the name Stephanie, 
indicating the crown. And Stephen is crowned by Christ. And he receives the martyr's crown. And you and I, hopefully, will receive some other crown, if not the martyr's crown, the crown of glory and other crowns that are listed in the Bible. But the bottom line is this. All who die in the Lord are going to ultimately reign with Christ. Now, I'm going to quote a verse, and I'm not making this up. You folks always bring your Bibles to make sure that your pastor's not making this up. It's important to do that. This is what it says. To him who overcomes, Jesus said, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. You know what that means? It means that you and I are going to sit on the throne of God. In the very early session, I actually heard an amen or two as I was preaching. I guess in a Baptist church, that's a quorum. (laughs) Can you imagine that? We're going to reign with Jesus Christ forever and ever. So those, hey, there you go. (laughs) I knew you had it in you. You just needed a little bit of encouragement. Imagine that. No wonder Tony Evans says, have a good time at my funeral because I'm not going to be there. And I'm not going to be at mine, and you're not going to be at yours. And uh, it's a good thing you won't be able to listen to all the kind things that are said about you, because if you did, you'd say, you know, I think they have me confused with somebody else here. (laughs) My friend today, the road can be very rough. But if you're a believer, you have a safe landing. Because, you see, death is not the end of the road. Death is simply a bend in the road, but... All those who die, who die in the Lord. What a beautiful expression in Scripture. All those who die in the Lord die with these experiences which are ongoing and forever. And of course, we can meet one another. We will meet one another, clearly. And we'll know each other. And by the way, your body, you know, the one that you brought with you. In fact, one of the requirements listening to this message is that you are alive. You know, the body that you brought is going to be transformed. You will look something like you do today, but a lot better. And it'll take a lot less time to be looking good. (laughs) And we'll be with God forever. I expect to see my parents. You know, since I was here, my mother died. My father died at 106. My mother died a year and a half ago at 103. In fact, my parents lived so long that I'm sure until my father died, all of their friends in heaven thought that they just didn't make it. They said, (laughs) where are the Lutzers? Do you understand now the experiences that are had by those who die in the Lord? Overwhelming. Let me give you some bottom line conclusions here that help us and that hopefully nail a few things down. First of all, remember that martyrdom and suffering is part of God's plan. Martyrdom and suffering is part of God's plan. We look at America today and we think, oh, you know, we're going to have to suffer for Christ. And we are. And we're going to have to have decisions of conscience. Sometime I want to preach a message entitled Crises of Conscience uh, because, you know, you question Can I do this as a Christian? Can I do that as a Christian? It's going to get worse. We know that. 
And yet the fact of the matter is that for this we were called. In fact, there's a verse in Revelation 13, I think it is, where it says, those who are to be beheaded to being beheaded, they will go. That's a paraphrase. But there are those whom God marks out and says, I want you to be martyrs. And the day may come in America that we have to become martyrs for the faith even as is happening around the world. So please keep that in mind. So, um, you know, we think to ourselves, well, you know, martyrdom was great for Stephen, martyrdom was great for Jesus, but not for us. Did you know that America is an anomaly? You study church history and you discover very seldom did the church have freedom of religion. We always think of the persecutions in the early centuries, but after the time of the Reformation, what we find is that those who were rebaptized upon profession of faith, who were baptized as infants, but they were rebaptized because infant baptism was seen as the glue that held church and state together. And uh, the medievals said if we begin to baptize people who believed in Christ only, then the whole Christendom is going to be broken up. And they were quite right about that as history developed. But more rebaptizers were massacred in the 15 and 1600s than died in the early persecutions in Rome. Our day may be coming, and the question we have to ask is, are we ready? Whatever was good for Jesus and Paul and Peter, who was crucified upside down, God may think is also good for us. Second, it's very important, notice how the death of a Christian affects people differently. The death of a Christian affects people differently. You know, you look at Stephen's death and you realize a couple of things. First of all, to the nation Israel, it was further condemnation. Because, you know, they hardened their hearts. Even though Stephen died, and you'll notice what the text says, verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So for the Jews of the day, it was further condemnation because they sought and it didn't touch their hearts. They were so hard-hearted they hardened their hearts even more. And you know, there are people listening to this message who could do that. You could actually be listening today and harden your heart even more. What a mistake that would be. So for them, it was condemnation. For the Christian church, this was confirmation. In other words, the Jesus in whom we believed is just as good as his word. I mean, here's a man who's dying, who's witnessing the fact that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, ready to receive him. And then, for one man, it was salvation. Do you notice that the text says this? It says, But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. Saul sought, hardened his heart, but God intervened. You know the ninth chapter, the marvelous conversion that the Saul went through and became the Apostle Paul and so forth. 
What a wonderful story it is. But in Acts chapter 22, the Apostle Paul is giving his testimony. And he's rehearsing his history. And he says, one of the sins that I committed is I agreed to the execution of Stephen. So you see, there's no doubt that in Saul's mind, even though he put it out of his mind, he was troubled at what he saw. How can a man die like that forgiving his enemies? And so for Saul, it was a means of salvation, just like this message for some of you today can be the means of salvation. And if God is talking to your heart, you know exactly who you are, don't you? Because God may be speaking to your heart for the need to trust Christ. There's a final lesson, and I know this is a little different from your notes, but the final lesson is that God never allows us to see all the good that our suffering does. Now, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to say it again, because at the front here, there are people here who are taking notes, and they need to get it. God never allows us to see all the good that our suffering does. You know, you think, for example, of... uh, I'm going to choose Naomi from the book of Ruth. Do you remember how she and her husband went into Moab because there was a famine in the land and her husband died and her sons died and the whole bit and then she comes back with Ruth? And What does Naomi say when she comes back to Bethlehem? She says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which is bitter. She said, God has dealt bitterly with me. Wonder if today there's somebody here and you say, God has dealt bitterly with me. I really got the short end of the stick. Well, you remember things do improve. Ruth marries Boaz. Naomi ends up being a grandmother and so forth. But Naomi dies not knowing what God's ultimate purpose was. Centuries later, what we discover when the New Testament opens and is written by Matthew, of all things, who appears in the genealogy of Jesus but Ruth? I think that the reason that Naomi went through all of the suffering she did with the famine, the death of her husband, the whole bit, was that God wanted a Moabitess in the genealogy of Jesus to prove that the gospel is for everybody, including Moabites. But Naomi dies. She has no idea. But that's the case. Stephen is being stoned. He has no idea that there is a young man there picking up his garments whom someday will be converted by God and write about 13 or so books of the New Testament. He doesn't know that. And you and I don't know the good that we have done and what our suffering has accomplished. We die in faith, not understanding it. That's what the whole book of Hebrews chapter 11 is all about, isn't it? That's why the Bible says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth, and their works do follow them. That's why the judgment seat of Jesus Christ is well after we die, at the time of the rapture. The reason for that is because all the good that your suffering and prayers have done, all of that has not yet come in. Only eternity will reveal it. I told you earlier that uh, years ago when people died without all of the modern medicines, that they sometimes looked into eternity. And uh, here's an illustration. D.L. Moody 
founder of the Moody Church. He was afraid of death as a youth, and then God delivered him from that because the Bible does say, you know, in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus came to deliver those who through all of their life were afraid of death. It's time for him to die. He said a number of things, but I'm thinking of this. Earth recedes, heaven opens. If this be death, it is glorious. When a believer dies, for them it is glorious. Even though you can't see it. They never saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. They never saw what Stephen saw. And you don't see what your loved one sees. But for them it is glorious. Let me give you another example. Sir Francis Newport, brought up in a Christian home, taught the evangelical faith, gets in with bad company. How many times has this story been told? Ends up being the head of the infidels. You can read about him on the internet. So he's a famous atheist. I wish I had copied down everything he said before he died. I only thought that I just snatched a few phrases. It's quite a long thing. But one of the things he said is, Oh, if I could suffer for a million years, I could not buy my forgiveness. I think it was Voltaire who said, Do not try to convince me there is no God before he died. He said, Even now I feel the flames of hell. Newport said, Eternity, eternity, the insufferable pangs of hell. And if you want to know the kind of existence that Newport had after he died, read the 16th chapter of the book of Luke, and you'll soon discover that Hades is a mighty bad place, and Hades has not yet been thrown into hell. That happens later on in the book of Revelation. It's terrifying. Imagine dying, as Dante said, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Why the two different experiences? It all has to do with Jesus. You're a university student. You say, oh, you know, there are all these other religions of the world out there that are really nice. Yeah, they have prophets, they have gurus. I'll tell you what they do not have, and that is a Savior who's actually able to forgive our sins, bring us into God's presence, and present us to God as perfect as God himself is so that God can declare us righteous. There is nobody out there like Jesus. Would have been another good time for an amen, actually, but there's nobody out there like Jesus. And he taught very clearly that your eternal destiny is dependent on your relationship with him. I urge you today, don't harden your heart. Come to Christ. Admit your need, your sinfulness. You can't get there by yourself. You need a Savior scooping you up from your sin, declaring you righteous and saving your soul. Time is short. Eternity is long. C.S. Lewis said, and I'm paraphrasing now, he says, every human being we meet is either going to someday be such a beautiful being that we will be tempted to worship that being or a horror, such of which you would meet only in horror movies. He said it is immortals that we joke with, talk with, eat with. Wow. This room today is full of immortals. Where will you be one minute? 
after you die. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are so inspired by the example of Stephen and Jesus and martyrs throughout the centuries and the hundreds of people who are martyred every day because they belong to you. And Lord, we pray today that you might give us resolve and courage no matter what we face, knowing that we are in your loving hands. And now before I close this prayer, if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, could you reach out to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, save me because I'm a sinner? Would you tell him that? You talk to him if he's talked to you. Father, hear the prayer of all and the work that you've begun in human hearts. Don't give them rest until their souls are at rest in you. In Jesus' name.